Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 with me. Genesis chapter 6 is, uh, you turn there, just a reminder here, what's going on. We're talking about gospel foundations and what's, what we find out about the gospel from the very beginning of God's story to us in these first five books of the Bible, we call the, the Pentateuch. Uh, these these truths that we learn here uh, help us to understand the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, as God continues to reveal it throughout uh, Scripture. And so there, there's so much here, uh, there's so much in Scripture that uh, if I spent, um, spent time going through every paragraph as, as a church, we wouldn't get it done in my lifetime unless the Lord intervened in some sort of miraculous way, allowed me to live several hundred years, which I'm not opposed to, but... Um, as I've mapped out my, my ministry life, the Lord allows me to continue to live at a normal lifespan and have normal health and things like that and doesn't return. You know, what is it going to take to get through the whole counsel of God? And, and this is kind of the, the pace that we need to set a little bit here. And I, I am probably going to need a couple extra years of life if the Lord allows at my pace. But uh, So what we're doing here is we're trying to look at some large portions of Scripture in the Pentateuch to help us understand the New Testament that we go through at a, a slower uh, rate, a little more carefully in terms of, of, of looking at smaller pieces of Scripture. But I'd encourage you to be reading through Genesis and other parts of the, the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, on your own. Uh, we're looking at uh, 6 and 7 this morning. In a couple weeks, we'll look at, at 8 and 9 and kind of go back to some stuff in 6 and 7. But this morning, we're looking at, at Genesis 6 and 7 and uh, God's uh, judgment here. We're looking at judgment in the gospel. We're going to take the next two weeks after this morning and do our missions conference and come back, Lord willing, and finish up the story of Noah and then continue through the Pentateuch. So that's what you can be reading on your own as we go through this section of scripture together. We're going to look, we're going to read, looking at Genesis 6 and 7, we're going to read Genesis 6 together. And if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God's word, if, if it gets to be a little long, you need to sit down, feel free to do that. And we'll, we'll, we'll uh, begin to read here in verse 1 of Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of daughter, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make, your, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your aid as we come to these verses this morning, verses that are, that are hard for us to accept, hard for us to understand some of the truths in here, and we would ask that as we think about your judgment, we would see the good news even in that, and Lord, if our hearts are, are hardened to some of these truths, I pray that you'd soften them. I pray that you'd help me to speak with a tone of graciousness and, and a tone of, of kindness, even as we talk about hard truths, and that uh, my heart would uh, be very sensitive to, to some of the, the struggles we may have with these things. I, I pray for our love for you to increase. I pray that our hatred of sin would increase as we think about these truths. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. There are lots of kids' songs about Bible stories. There's Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. There's, there's that song. There's songs about this little light of mine and songs about Jesus healing people. There's songs from the Old Testament, Father Abraham. There's songs about the wise man who built his house upon the rock, the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And, and I, maybe you've sung these songs to kids before or sung them as a kid. And I, I think those songs, by and large part, do a good job capturing the, the essence of the biblical truth or the Bible story. But there's, there's one song that I can think of from my childhood that we loved. My brothers and sister and I listened to this song. We had a record player that had this song on it. And I can remember us listening to this. And I sang this song with my kids. And it was a song that we really loved growing up. But as I started singing it with my kids or listening to it on the CD, I thought, boy, um, I don't know. I'm not sure that song really captures the story well. It seemed be a little bit off. It, it's a story, it's a song, Rise and Shine, or some of you know it as, as Arky Arky, okay? And you know how it begins. It says, you know, the Lord, and there's different versions, but the one I know, the Lord told Noah there's going to be a floody floody. The Lord told Noah there's going to be a floody floody. Get those animals out of the muddy muddy children of the Lord. And it kind of goes on. It talks about the, the animals coming in. It says the animals, the animals, they came in by twosies, twosies. The animals, the animals, they came in by twosies, twosies. Elephants and kangaroosies, roosies, uh, 
children of the Lord. And so my singing is really bad. I apologize. Um, I feel terrible. My kids did the same thing. Um, the, uh, the song kind of ends, right, with uh, everything was, was fine and dandy dandy, okay? And so you kind of but that, I don't know if that song really captures the, the severity of, of, of what's happening there, right? Now, I don't want to be pastor the grouch and ruin children's songs, right? But I'm not sure if a song that kind of talks about animals coming in by twosies, twosies, elephants and kangaroosies, roosies, really captures what's happening here in Genesis 6 and 7. And if you read most kids' stories about this, this event, you'll really, surprisingly, and this is shocking to me, really have no conception of the fact that this had something to do with sin and God's judgment on sin, that this wasn't just a story about keeping animals dry and having a boat ride together, you know. You see, the story here is about how people were wicked, very wicked, and God saw the wickedness of humanity and dealt with it in an incredibly severe way through, through judgment. Judgment that was so severe that one family survived and every other individual on the face of the earth died through drowning. It's an incredibly powerful story about the severity of God's wrath and judgment. And and quite frankly, the story of Noah makes me uncomfortable, at least in my flesh. In fact, talking about God's judgment makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable for a couple reasons. One, I'm a sinner. And it makes me uncomfortable to think about how severe my sin is. And so coming to a story or talking about God's judgment confronts me with that reality and it makes me uncomfortable. Or it also makes me uncomfortable because I love other people who are sinners, who have not availed themselves of God's grace. And so it makes me uncomfortable to think about God's judgment falling upon them. It's, it's not a, a comfortable truth. It's uncomfortable. It also makes me uncomfortable because I live in a culture that has largely rejected the idea that God is going to judge or that God has wrath. And not even just in the secular culture, but even in the evangelical church, the Christian culture, talking about God's wrath is a really uncomfortable truth for, for many, and many churches, I think, are afraid to talk about it. And so it's uncomfortable for me. In fact, we have some... We have some really just dear, dear friends, several families who we've loved very deeply. They've come to our church and, and, and they've left. And one of the things that they told me was they're, they're uncomfortable about how we talk about God's judgment. Why? Why would we talk about this then? Why would God force us to think about it? And maybe you're uncomfortable by it as well. You think, boy, you know, I, I understand that sin is bad, but the idea of a flood, boy, I, that just, I don't know. Or the idea of a future judgment, that I think this flood is a picture of a future, the idea of a future judgment and God's wrath being expressed against people for eternity, I don't know. Why would God 
have us believe this? Why would he tell us about it? I believe that this doctrine is crucial to hold to. I believe that being confronted with the biblical truth of God's judgment forces me to turn to him for his mercy and salvation. I think that's what God is doing here as he tells us about his judgment and his wrath. Being confronted with this very uncomfortable truth, being, being confronted with it forces me to do something. It forces me, if I believe it, if I'm confronted with this idea of God's wrath and his judgment, here it is, I can't escape it. It's in throughout scripture, I'm confronted with it. It forces me to do something. It forces me to say, okay, if, if this is true, if God's wrath is going to be expressed against humanity, I've got to do something. What do I have to do? This, this truth that I'm confronted with forces me to turn to God and receive his mercy and salvation for me to recognize, man, there is no way out of this. There's no way I can deliver myself. The only thing I can do is fall upon the mercy of God and receive his salvation. I think that's what God wants us to do as we come to Genesis 6 and 7. So let's talk about God's judgment this morning. And I hope we do it in a very gracious way, but in a very biblical way as well. Let's talk about four truths about God's judgment. And here's the first thing that I want you to see. God's judgment is slow. God's judgment is slow. And look at your Bibles there in those first four verses of Genesis 6. And I'll tell you this. Now, these are some of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture to understand. Okay, And so let's, let me kind of walk through what, what I think is going on here. And I won't go as in-depth, perhaps, as we might at, at another time. But, but here's, here's what I think is happening. It says, verse 1. Genesis 6, men begin to multiply on the face of the land, and what's happening here is a fulfillment of the blessing that God gives in Genesis 1. Remember, he tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And so that's, that's what's taking place here. There's this multiplication. More people are being born. It says daughters were born to the sons of men. I think he's talking about these, these, these children that are born to human beings. And then we come to verse 2, and daughters are contrasted to these sons. Verse 2 says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And you say, okay, what exactly does that, who are the sons of God? And here's what I think. I'm not 100% sure about this, but, but here's what I think is going on. Every time we encounter this phrase, sons of God, in the Old Testament, it's referring to the spirit world. So, for example, in, in Job, it's referring to demons. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says, The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and then Satan was among them. And we're talking here about, about evil spirits. And that's who I think the author of Genesis, who Moses is talking about here, as he talks about these sons of God in verse 2. And I don't think it's necessarily that these, these demons are marrying women, but they're, they're these people that, that the demons have influenced in such a way. They're people who are under d- demonic influence, perhaps demonic um, possession. And, and these people are, these demons are, are entering into the marriage relationship in a really bizarre way to where these, these, these men are, are influenced by these demons and they're entering these marriage relationships. And again, I don't know exactly what's taking place, but that's kind of what I think is being described. I think, about, I think that not just because of how this phrase, sons of God, is used in the Old Testament, but also as we come to the New Testament, we see Peter, for example, 
allude to this. In 2 Peter chapter 2, talks about the time of Noah and how God didn't spare angels, didn't spare angels when they sinned. And I think he's talking about the sin here in Genesis 6. So these demonic beings are involved in this sinful activity. Jude describes it this way in Jude verse 6, angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority but left their proper dwelling. And so I, I think he's saying that in some ways, and, and I I think as part of God's grace that we don't know more, there are some things that we need to be very ignorant of, and this is one of them, but somehow there's this, this demonic involvement in these marriage relationships, and it's, it's bad, it's evil, it's wicked. How does God respond to it? Well, verse 3 says, God sees this, and he says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. His flesh, his days shall be 120 years. And what I think that means, that he's saying, okay, from this moment that I see this, this wicked activity taking place, the, the clock has started. It's not going to be an immediate judgment. There's going to be a 120-year period here in which I allow time for repentance. It's 120 years. And then verse 4 kind of describes perhaps a little more of what's taking place. This is the Nephilim, and that can mean giants or, or, or great, great ones that are on the earth in those days and also afterward. And the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And it doesn't mean necessarily mighty men in a positive sense. What I think he's saying here, you take all that together, and what I, I think that God is telling us here is that there are these, these people who are producing a race that's dedicated to opposing God through demonic involvement. There's demonic means of deception and destruction, and people have given themselves over to this, and there's this, this race that's being produced that's dedicated itself to opposing God and his holiness, and God has to deal with it. But he doesn't do so immediately. He does so patiently. First Peter 3 says that God waited patiently in the days of Noah. God's judgment is slow. God's judgment is slow. My children tell me that I'm not a, a slow person. We were at a stoplight the other day, and, and uh, my daughter is next to me, and I start saying, green, 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 green. Come on, everybody. And uh, she goes, Dad, you're not exactly a patient person, are you? No, no, I'm not. And you're grounded. No. My children, my children, on their hand, sometimes they are very slow. Uh, and so, for example, this child who had those words of encouragement for me, um, she is often the very last person to leave the home and hop into the, the minivan. I mean, we're all in there, the car's running, and she just, you know, she's the last one out. I have another daughter who, she is the last one at the table almost every time, and she's, you know, everyone's done, we've gone to bed, and she's still just there eating. Um, I have another son who is very slow with his schoolwork, just really, really, and we're all trying to get the day going, and he's just still kind of doing his, his schoolwork thing, and the cool thing is there are things I learn about each of my children through their slowness aspects of their character that are revealed. My daughter, who's the last one to the minivan, there's a reason that she's the last one to the minivan. She's usually the last one to the minivan, and I have to 
tell myself this so I don't get frustrated, because she's helped her other siblings get ready. So she helps her sister do her hair. Her sister comes out of the van, and this other daughter now has to get ready. My daughter, who's last at the table, she's last at the table because she is just enjoying the family. She's talking, and she's, she's enjoying her food. This morning, you know, I'm kind of in trying to get ready, trying to think about the message this morning, and, and uh, it seemed like time to get ready. And, um, and, and she's just talking to me, just talking, dad, in this food grade, and, you know, and she's, she's eating every bite. Oh, dad, this is amazing. And just, just, what a beautiful character, right? My son, who's just slow at his schoolwork, there's things about his character that are revealed there too. Maybe some, some positive and negatives, but the positive is he's just a laid back guy. And, and his eyes say, but we got to hurry, we got to hurry. He's kind of like, well, 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 why? I mean, I know you're on borrowed time, t- Dad, but I'm 10, you know, like, <laughs> where am I going? Let's just enjoy this, man. There's some great things about his character that are revealed through his, his slowness. What do we learn about God's character and the fact that he's slow? We see that God's slowness reveals his love for us, his, that he's a patient God, that he doesn't, as Ezekiel puts it this way, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked, listen to what he was, but that the wicked, this is what God wants, the wicked would turn from his way and live. In other words, the wicked person is, is headed this way. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't delight in, in the death of the wicked as he pursues death. I, I want the wicked person to turn and to live. God is slow in his judgment because he wants the wicked to turn. Slowness, slowness on God's part reveals something about his character. Now, how, how do we apply this in our lives? What's the application? Two thoughts of application. In fact, turn to 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, Peter uses Noah as an illustration, or God's judgment in the days of Noah as an illustration. He tells us how we should apply it. The first thing is this. Two thoughts of application as we think about how God's judgment is slow. Number one, I need to not confuse the slowness of God's judgment with the idea that it might not come at all. In other words, I need to believe that God's wrath is coming. I don't want to be a scoffer. In 2 Peter 3, he says this in verse 3, know that scoffers will come. Verse 4, they will say, where? Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, there was the beginning of, of human, in the, you know, the, the beginning of the, the universe, and things have continued since the beginning of the universe, and now here we are, and things are now the way that they've always been. For, he says in verse 5, they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And but, uh, but by that same word, the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. As I think about God's judgment being slow, I need to say, okay, I'm not, that doesn't mean that it's not coming. 
I can't live my life right now under the delusion that God's judgment won't come. And so often our temptation is to believe, well, because God's judgment is coming, then I can, uh, I can or because, God, because we don't think about God's judgment, we think, well, I can just kind of live however I want to live. I can have whatever values I desire to have. God's judgment, just because it's slow, doesn't mean it's not coming. That's another application here is that I need to repent and pursue righteousness. Listen to what Peter goes on to say here. He says, don't overlook this one fact that with the Lord one day is a thousand years. He's not slow. And he says in the verse 9, he doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the whole and the works that are done on it will be exposed, since all these things that are thus to be dissolved are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Understand his question there? If God's judgment is coming, how should we respond by living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How do I need to respond to the fact that God's judgment is slow? As a believer, I need to be one who, because I have today, because I have this moment right now, I need to be pursuing righteousness. I need to understand God has given me today, God, or at least this moment, this second, in which I can pursue his righteousness and try to live holiness because judgment is in the future. Here's the second thing about God's judgment I'd invite you to consider with me. God's judgment is just. God's judgment is just. Verses 5 through 12 here talk about God looking at mankind. Verse 5 says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. And Remember in the creation account, God sees that things are good. God sees that things are good. God sees that things are good. Now he sees, and he sees not goodness, but wickedness. It's great. Verse 11, same thing. The earth is corrupt in God's sight. The earth is filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it's corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on earth. What has God seen as he looks upon the earth? He's seen depravity. He's seen depravity. There's a theological phrase that maybe you've heard before called total depravity, total depravity. And sometimes people think that the phrase total depravity means that people are as wicked as they could possibly be. And a person might say, well, I don't think people are as wicked as they could possibly be. Just the other day, for example, I, I was walking down the street and I, I saw a kitten and I didn't kick it. Uh, therefore, um, not that I would ever be tempted to kick a kitten, but um, you know, I'm not as depraved as I might possibly be, but that's not what total depravity means. Total depravity means that that every part of me has somehow been affected by sin. What I think about, even the process that I, that I use to think has been affected by the fall, and my ability to, to understand concepts has been affected by the fall. My, my emotions have been affected by the fall. My physical body has been affected by the fall. I'm, I've been affected by, by fall and by sin in very profound ways. No, no part of me has been left unaffected. 
And what normally happens is, in our cultures is this. We, we see that God has restrained our ability to pursue evil as much as we might desire to. So, for example, there's a government in place that prevents us from being as, as evil as we might otherwise be. There are family relationships that are part of God's common grace that prevents us from pursuing wickedness as we might. There's a, we have a conscience that God has given us. And so God in his grace has put some restraints on us. But what's happened here through this, I believe, this demonic involvement is some of those restraints have been removed. Now there's this, this culture that is dedicated to pursuing evil in a, in a way that I, perhaps we can't even comprehend. The thoughts of their hearts are on evil continually and don't judge these people more harshly than ourselves because apart from God's grace, we'd be here as well. And so how does God respond? He responds, first of all, with regret and grief in verse 6. He regrets that he had made man, and I think what Moses is, is meaning here is he's using human-like language to describe this emotion that God feels as he looks at this moment. There's this, this sorrow that things are the way that they are right now. It hurts him in his heart, Moses says. And what does God decide to do? His determination is to judge the world. He says, I'm going to blot out man. That's his determination. Now, we're going to talk about Moses and the exception of Moses later and even more in a few weeks. But what we see here is that Noah was righteous, blameless in his generation. As we think about God looking upon earth and, and making this determination, we, we understand that God's judgment is just. And, and how is God's judgment just? Well, first of all, I know here, as I look at this text, that God's judgment is just because it's, it's completely without any sort of partiality. In other words, there's not some righteous people who get judged and some righteous people who don't get judged. There aren't some wicked people who don't get judged and some wicked people who do just on the basis of God liking one guy and not liking another guy. God's judgment is completely impartial. The other thing I see about God's judgment and his justice is this. God's judgments are just because they're on the basis of a perfect record and a perfect understanding of our deeds. God's judgment is just because he sees everything. He has a perfect record and a perfect understanding of everything. The book of Revelation, John says in Revelation twenty twelve, I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. In other words, these, there's these books there, and these books have a complete record of the things that we've done. And God's judgment is absolutely just because not only is it impartial, he has all the facts. Everything that we've done is perfectly recorded in, in his understanding. And he, not only does he know what we've done, he knows why we've done it. God's judgment here is absolutely, completely just because it's based on a perfect, complete understanding of everything that we've ever done. It couldn't possibly be more fair or terrifying. God's judgment here is completely just. Even the worst things, even the worst things you know about me are only some of the bad things that I've done. God knows everything that you've done and he knows it with 
perfect understanding. God's judgment is absolutely just because he knows it all. And he's not partial. It's also just because he's completely righteous. So he's impartial. He knows it all. Understands it all. You can't, you can't say to God, well, God if you, let me just put this in a different light. <laughs> I know it looks bad. Let me, let me explain it to you, God. He, he knows. And then he stands as a judge who's absolutely and completely righteous in his judgment and in his, in his own character. This isn't a, a judge who's mostly nice or, or mostly good and some kind of some mistakes. He's, he's completely righteous. What do we do with that? It's hard to even grasp, right? It's hard to grasp. I mean, our ability to make judgments is affected by our ignorance and our bias, right? Whenever you, you watch a, a sporting event with a friend and that friend has a different team that they're cheering for than you do and you guys watch this, the same, you, you, uh, you watch the same game and one of you would say, boy, I, I'm, I'm really rooting for this team and the officials are really unfair to my team, and another person would watch that same game and say, boy, the officials are being really unfair to my team. It's hard to, to not be biased. Bias affects everything that we do. But here's the cool thing, the scary thing, brothers and sisters. God here knows it all, no bias, completely understands. So what's the application? What, what do we do with this, this truth that God's judgments are just? Here, here's a couple thoughts. First of all, as I think about God's judgment, I have to trust in him. Instead of looking to myself and saying, well, this is how I would handle this, or this is what I think should happen here, I have to say, look, I, I have to understand I'm partial. I'm partial to myself. I tend to like myself a lot. I tend to like my friends a lot. I want to kind of cut them a break. I have, to, I have to say, I'm going to trust myself to the one and trust in the one who is completely righteous. And then what I also have to do, another application here as I think about God's judgment is I, I need to see my sin not according to my own standards of righteousness but according to God's standards of righteousness. It's easy for me to say, okay, well, here's, uh, here are the worst people in the world and here's me. This, this, by the way, is toward the better side of things. So here's the worst person in the world, here's me, here's like the really, let's see, here's me, and then here's like the best person in the world, I'm kind of closer to that guy, that person, than, than this person over here, the really wicked people, and so I'm going to use that standard of righteousness, and yeah, I've got some issues, but not about, you know. And so if I use my standard of righteousness, these people should be treated a lot differently than these guys over here, these people over here. But my standard of righteousness isn't the standard of righteousness to use. I have to use God's standard of righteousness. God who is absolutely complete perfection. I can't even use the same scale when I compare myself to God, can I? Here's another application of this, and this may not be an application you'd make immediately, but I think it's very important to think about. If it's true that God's judgments are absolutely just, God is impartial, he's not biased, he has a complete understanding of everything, 
Here's how I also have to apply this truth. I must apply this truth this way, this way brothers and sisters. This, this affects our relationships with one another profoundly to believe that God's judgments are just. What it means is I, I cannot be the person who executes judgment on others. Not that I can't use God's standards of righteousness and call people to that and say, hey, this is what you need to do and, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna discern what sin is. I'm not using judgment in that sense, but in the terms of meeting out punishment, that's not my job. That's not my job. I don't have the ability to know your faults fully. And so as you wrong me, my obligation is not to get you back. In other words, I don't say, okay, I'm the judge and you've done this to me and so here's your punishment. This is what I'm gonna do back to you. My obligation is to, is to forgive. Here's what, um, what we see in scripture, 1 Peter 2 says that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so often in our personal relationships, our temptation is to, is to mete out punishment, to enact vengeance on those who've wronged us, either a physical vengeance or an emotional vengeance. You've wronged me, yeah, I'll forgive you when I'm ready to forgive you, once you've suffered enough. We were walking in Walmart yesterday, and I was with my sons, and one son kind of wasn't really paying attention to where he's going, and so he kind of walked in front of the other son and tripped him. And that son immediately tripped him back. Hey, you know what? Trip me. You're going to get tripped, buddy. Right. But what does God say? He says what I encouraged the son with that tripped him. I said, look, what, is, what does the Bible say? Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You don't have, you don't have the right to enact vengeance. You and I, as we think about the judgment of God, you and I need to forgive. You and I need to forgive because we have our own situation with God we have to deal with, right? And we want God's forgiveness and grace we need to exude that in our relationships with others. God's judgment is slow. It's, it's just, here's the third thing I want you to think about God's judgment. God's judgment is terrible. It's terrible. It's fearful. It's profound. It's severe. God says no, to know in verse 13 of Genesis 6, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. The earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he talks about making this, this ark. And he says, everything, this is verse 17, everything that is on the earth shall die. Then you go into chapter 7. God says in verse 4, in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. Every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. The floodwaters come upon the earth when Noah is 600 years old. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded them, and the Lord shut them in. The floods, verse 17, continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. It rose high above the earth. It continues to talk about what takes place there. And then listen to how many times the destruction is described. Verse 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, Beasts, 
all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and then all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. There's a finality here a severity here. The, the damage is, is extensive. Everything, in, everything that's, that's breathing on the earth, it's breathing, it stops. Its breath is, is taken from it. It drowns. Everything. And it should cause our breath to stop for a moment as well as we can consider the, the terrible nature of God's wrath. What do we see here? about God's judgment. We see here that that God's judgment is proportionate to the offense. And what that means is that if I read the story of of, of Noah and the ark and I say, well, my, that seems, that seems rather severe. Or if I think about future judgment and eternal judgment, I say, well, well, my, that seems like an overreaction. If that's my heart response, and, and I assure you, my heart is certainly tempted toward that at times. But if that's my heart response, it means one of two things has happened, or, or both. In my case, both. If my reaction is to read the story of, of every living thing here, here dying as, as God expresses his wrath, one of, one of two things, or both, have happened. For me, both. One, I haven't understood the severity of my sin. I haven't understood how bad sin is. Or secondly, I haven't understood the utter righteousness of God. If I don't grasp those two things, then yeah, the judgment seems like an overreaction. But even as I I have that heart response, it warns me, hey, buddy, Daniel, you don't get it. You don't get how bad sin is, and you don't get how righteous God is. One of my friends recently told me that studying the end times makes him fearful. He says, I, I, think about, I, think about the end time, I think about God's judgment and it, it scares me, he said. I said, I think that's not an unwise response. Just as he thinks about the future that awaits those who aren't reconciled to God. How do we apply this? What does this mean that God's judgment is terrible? Does it mean that we just, we, we, we cower in fear of God and we don't have a relationship with him? Here, here's what I think this means. As I think of applying this in my own life, first of all, it means my life needs to demonstrate that I believe that judgment on sin is real. 
that I believe this is a real thing and that sin is bad and I need to have a zero tolerance in my life for sin. And I don't just walk around saying, well, yeah, this, this thing is kind of bad that I'm doing, but, you know, it's just a little thing. What it means is I need to have this, this heart that says, I understand judgment is coming upon the world for sin. And what I've just done or what I've thought, that's sin. That's what God's judgment is going to, to come against. And it's, it's not a little thing. It's a big thing. I'll tell you this truth. As I was thinking about this passage this week, there were several times in my, my life where I had a, a heart response or some sort of thought flittered into my mind, and I said, God, help me, because I was thinking about the reality of God's judgment and how terrible it is. This, this response, this, this, this attitude is not some, eh, it's not a big deal. It's a big deal to God. The tone of voice that I use to my children is not something to just kind of dismiss. If it's a sinful tone, it's a big deal. And what I need to, to say in my heart is, look, I want my life to demonstrate that judgment of God is real and, and sin is, is, is wicked and I don't want to have any part of it. That's why we think about Jesus' words where he says, you know, if your eye is causing you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God maimed than suffer forever with great eyesight. Radical There are radical steps that we need to be willing to take to deal with sin because we believe that God's judgment on sin is real. Another application here is I think about God's judgment is terrible. If I love people, I'm gonna be a watchman. One who proclaims, hey, this is coming. This is coming. Let, let, me, let me talk just very briefly then about this last thing about God's judgment. God's judgment is escapable. It's escapable. We see deliverance throughout this passage. Deliverance comes in, in almost every section, this hope of deliverance. We see that Noah finds favor with God in verse 8 in the midst of this wicked generation. We see even as God describes his judgment, he says, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to allow you to continue. I'm going to, provide, I'm going to destroy wickedness with the earth, but, but I'm going to save you. I'm going to make a covenant with you, he says in chapter 6. Then he says in chapter 7, verse 1, I, you go in the ark. I've seen that you're righteous before me in this generation. Now, what makes Noah righteous? What allows Noah to escape this terrible judgment of God? It's his faith. Hebrews eleven seven tells us this. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by what? By faith. Noah's righteousness is not an inherent righteousness. He too suffers from, from total depravity, every aspect of his being somehow affected by sin, and yet what does he have? He has faith. Trust in God, belief in him for his salvation. You see, the whole point of this story, the whole point of, of the story of Noah's Ark is not about how cute animals are and about how you keep animals safe from the rain and how you, it's fun to take a boat trip with animals. The whole point of the story is that, that God provides salvation from his wrath. Even though his wrath is slow in coming, even though it's just, even though it's terrible, it's escapable. And he himself provides the escape. Peter, as he describes 
Jesus' salvation relates it to Noah. Noah, Noah, Peter tells us, is a picture of Christ and the salvation that Christ offers. And here's one of the most clear passages in all of Scripture to understand the gospel and how we escape God's wrath. Again, this is 1 Peter chapter 3. And later in 1 Peter 3, he says this is a picture of Noah. But let me just read verse 18 for sake of time here. It says, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The righteous dies for the unrighteous. The righteous dies in place of the unrighteous, and through faith in Jesus Christ, we can receive salvation. We can receive salvation. Think about that word, salvation. What do we need saving from? Apart from understanding the truth about God's judgment, we would have no understanding of why we needed to be saved. Talking about God's judgment is uncomfortable. But being forced, being forced to confront it also forces me to turn to God alone for his mercy and his salvation. Won't you do that this morning? Let's pray. And Father, we do turn to you. We turn to you asking for your grace, your mercy, your salvation on us. We recognize that we don't deserve it. We recognize that you've provided it. You've provided the means of escape from the wickedness that you will judge. I pray that each person here would avail themselves of that, would trust in your son Jesus for eternal life, and that we would continue to trust in him, that we would continue to to believe in Jesus Christ and to continue to persevere in our faith by your grace. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen.